This is KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on April 12th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Back in the Day. Music was performed by If the Ocean. So our first storyteller is Peter Metcalf. Most of you may know Peter through the three-day public market, the holiday retail event, which he manages with his wife, Sandy, held each Thanksgiving at Centennial Hall since 1983. But his day job since the early 1980s has been as a self-employed writer, publisher, video producer, and photographer. He came to this career choice naturally. His late mother, Pat, was a gifted amateur photographer and a professional typesetter. And his late father, Vern, was a radio announcer, television news anchor, and newspaper editor. Pat and Vern raised nine children, all of whom Vern involved in radio and television productions. And as the subjects of many stories Vern shared with Juno audiences through the newspaper columns he wrote, please help me welcome Peter to the stage. Okay, back in the day, I was known as that Metcalf boy, Vern's son. Everybody knew Vern Metcalf here in Juneau. And as a young boy, I was just intensely proud of my father and enjoyed being the son of a celebrity. I think my eight brothers and sisters would agree, though, that there was a downside to this, and that was sometimes our family life was an open book. Case in point. An article my, brother, my father wrote when he was editor of the Juno Independent, a weekly that, he, he, uh, that was published through the 1950s, and this was about the year of statehood. And the story goes, my mother had asked me to babysit my younger brother, Jake. He was one. I was only seven, but I was an experienced baby wrangler. And my sister, Kim, was due home soon enough. So... Jake was in his high chair, hungry, normally a really happy boy, but he got hungry, he got hangry very quickly. And so I'm at the stove warming up a bottle of milk for Jake, and he's getting increasingly vocal, and I hear this kathunk. Jake goes silent. I turn around, and there he was, covered in cooking oil, head to toe. He had contrived to pull a loose cord and toppled a deep fat fryer that poured all its contents upon him and was spilling out into the linoleum floor. The only thing to be done, degrease the baby. So I took him to the tub, ran the water, but it just wouldn't run warm. Stopped that, and there he is, lying on his back, an inch of very cold water, screaming bloody murder, and try to lift a naked, greasy baby out of a tub. <laughs> he was caroming about the tub, and I finally gave up, and I called in the Calvary. I ran to my, the phone and called my grandmother, and in my excitement, I said, Grandma, 
Jake is going around the tub. And of course, she heard Jake is drowned in the tub. <laughs> so she comes bursting through the door in what just seems like a few moments and enters the kitchen at a run and hits the, <laughs> the greasy floor and exits like she's going into home plate with her, her skirt around her, around her head. So my reputation survived. Uh, the article um, was something my friends couldn't read anyway, but my grandma, not so much. She was my father's mother-in-law, and I don't know how that settled with her, but anyway, fast forward a couple years, and my father had been a um, very active Democrat politician, and he helped elect a bunch of Democrats to office, including Bill Egan as our first governor of Alaska. And he, he became, my father became the uh, first director of civil defense, which was disaster preparedness. So he's in Anchorage on business and calls, the, calls home and my mom's talking to him and she gestures for me to come over and dad has a question. So I get on the phone and he says, how would you like to go on a road trip with me? And I'm like, I don't need any details. Of course I would. So a couple of days later, my mom puts me on the, uh, on a Constellation, a four-engine uh, prop plane that was on a uh, milk run to Anchorage. And along the way, I'm like treated like a prince. I couldn't believe it. The stewardess says, beautiful woman, we're all over me. And I thought I was flying solo until I, several years later, I, I gave my mom some grief about putting an eight-year-old on a plane to fly by himself. And she said, well, you are almost nine. and and you were sitting right next to Governor Egan. <laughs> he was taking care of you. So I realized later, well, no wonder they treated me like a prince. <laughs> they thought I was Dennis Egan, Bill's son. <laughs> so I get to Anchorage, and the next day, my dad and I are heading out of town, but I'm sitting next to him in a fire truck. And what the job is, is to take a convoy of about 20 public safety vehicles uh, along the Alaska road system and drop these vehicles off at small communities. And so we, we head on through, um, oh, by the way, there were like federal vehicles that were given to the state. So this was part of his disaster preparedness. And we head through Palmer onto the Glen Highway, through Chickaloon, up to Glen Allen, take a left on the Richardson Highway, head through Paxson, all along the way, we're dropping off vehicles, and at every stop, I got to, you know, change vehicles, and I was having the time of my life. So we get up to Fort Greeley overnight there, and that was a very big deal because that was bragging points. I was just going to rub it into my older brother because he was really into, well, we were all into Army things in those days. So the next day, we head down the Alaska Highway, the Alcan, into Canada, and the next clear memory I have is being at Kluwani Lake area. And we enter a roadhouse to have dinner, and I'm settling into the booth, and my dad's, like everywhere else, this waiter comes up and is, um, you know, yucking it up with my dad, and their first name basis. And they turn to me, and I'm thinking about the hamburger I want to order. My dad introduces me. Mike, I want to introduce you to my son, Peter Metcalf. And I reach up, shake his hand, and I'm looking him in the eyes I was taught, and his eyes narrow. 
And he's shaking my hand, keeps shaking it, and repeating my name, Peter Metcalf, Peter Metcalf. Peter Metcalf of the Greased Pig Incident? <laughs> well, I was utterly amazed. Here I was in the middle of nowhere, and somebody knew my name. Well, it took me a while to realize the import of this, the power and the endurance of the written word. Here I was, you know, that was been two years had lapsed since the article was written, and it had traveled up thousands, well, hundreds of miles, waterway and the highway and across mountain ranges. And in the middle of nowhere, I was recognized. Really impressed me. But all I could think of in the moment was, could I have a hamburger side of fries? Thank you. Our next speaker tonight is Angel Collins. Angel Collins hails from Macon, Georgia, and moved to Juneau seven months ago. She likes knitting, eating, and drinking. Coffee is her poison. Also whiskey, which is literally poison. She headed up a storyteller's group in Georgia because she was just awful at telling stories and wanted to be better. Unfortunately, this, I guess unfortunately for us, this is the culmination of all her hard work. She is a writer and consciously makes funny faces and you can find her telling stories in written form online. If you search her name, just be aware she does not know all the words to rent songs and she is not a porn star. Please welcome Angel Collins. So um, this story is about traveling from Georgia to Juneau. I decided to do it solo, well, solo with two cats. And, um, and my mom was absolutely against it. As you know, the um, world is kind of crazy right now. And so she had this very graphic image of what it would look like if I, as a lone black female, were to travel throughout the South and across the country and then up the country and then into Canada, where is Canada? And to Alaska, which is not even part of the United States right now. Um, she had this very graphic image of what that would look like. Most of the stories were, ended up with me being killed, not the cats though. And so <laughs> I'd, I'd persevered anyway and decided that I was gonna go on my own. And, um, but of course that, those images wouldn't leave me as I traveled because my first stop was Alabama and um, the next was New Orleans and uh, Austin, Texas. But um, one of the things that um, really kind of brought to mind like how fortunate I was to be traveling now um, was a book called The Green Book. It was published between 1936 and 1966 and it was by a New York postal officer who decided that there needed to be something that let black people know how they could travel safely whenever they uh, went on the road. Around the 30s, there became a black middle class that were buying cars, and cars was the best way to travel because public transportation was so uh, prejudiced, as you may guess. Um, there are cattle cars for a reason, and it's not just for animals. And um, 
So cars was the way to go, but unfortunately, especially in the South, there were blackouts or sundown towns that um, black people were forced to leave if they were there. Um, some travelers didn't get to their destination. Um, in Mississippi, there was a rule that if you were a black driver, you could not overtake a white driver. So they could really, you know, your trip up if they wanted to. Um, <laughs> Well, um, but like when I, tr when I was traveling, I was visiting a friend in Alabama where I had a place to stay, and then we went to visit her friend and hung out in a pool all day so that we could talk and, and, and try to figure out what's Alaska gonna be like. And then when I went to New Orleans, I stayed with a friend um, as well, and um, Austin, Texas as well, but these are stereotypically towns where as I'm driving, I'm trying to figure out like, do I stop at this place? You know, like, uh, if you, I don't know if anyone knows what, um, what um, bold peanuts are, but bold peanuts are best if you go to the sketchiest um, gas station that you can find. Like, if it looks like you would not even want to go to the bathroom there, best bold peanuts, <laughs> hands down. I don't know why, I don't know. <laughs> but it's also, um, if you're by yourself as a black person, not the place that you may want to go. So, you know, it was just kind of like, should I stop or should I not stop? But um, I found it very easy and friendly to travel um, as I went on my way. Um, one of the things that I always pay attention to is how people react to you, especially when, if you know that the, like a lot of people in that region consider you the lowest common denominator for, you know, the human race. And so, like, you want to be aware, you know, like, hyper aware of, of how people are around you and how they're acting and, you know, are they smiling at you or do they look mean, you know, like, are they all staring at you when you walk into one place and maybe you just need to walk back slowly? Um, and, and I paid attention to that as I traveled. And the further I got west, the more I saw that people did not see me as the uh, lowest common denominator of the human race. But I did see who they saw as that lowest common denominator um, as I traveled through um, the northern west, northwestern United States and into Canada um, and saw how people, how other people now saw me as just nice, you know, they, they didn't look at me with suspicion. And it was one of the things that I had never really experienced getting away from the South because I, besides my friends and the people that knew me, when I went somewhere by myself, I was always viewed with suspicion. And one of the things that the Green Book did was to help black people know where they would go, where they weren't viewed with suspicion, where they could be safe, where they could get gas, get food to eat, would not be kicked out, things like that. And I had a very awesome trail of friends as I went along the way. But once I got into Canada, I didn't know anyone. Like basically, after Portland, Oregon, I was on my own by myself. And unfortunately, I was one cat less. Um, she ran away in um, California um, because she absolutely hated being in a carrier. And I was like, if only she had waited a few more weeks, then we would be here together. But um, uh, it was a, that was a hard part of my trip, but the travel itself was amazing. And then I got to uh, Alaska, and uh, unlike the Green Book, we have things like couchsurfing.com where you can, where if you travel, you can set up a profile and you make friends with your travels, and, and then you find places to stay, and the community helps you know what's a safe place. And so my first weekend here in um, Juneau, I couch surfed on a houseboat. And one of the jokes, uh, one of the things I said before I left uh, uh, Macon was that I wanted to find myself on a boat 
you know, like as soon as I possibly could. And I um, found the, this boat and I was like, oh, I hope they accept me. And they did. And so within the first, you know, two days of being in Juneau, I was on a boat and it was really awesome. Um, but my cat hated it, the one that remained. She, <laughs> she absolutely um, hated it. Um, so one of the things that, um, that the Green Book taught me with the experiences from the 30s to the 60s and my experience today is that um, it is, we've developed a community, despite all the bad things that we may hear, that does help people as they go along the way, even when they're strangers. So, um, and I loved, you know, there's a mountain behind me. Oh my goodness, that's exactly what I wanted when I left. So, um, so I thank this community for being great, and I'm glad that we don't live in a time where I have to have a book that tells me where it's safe to stop. Thanks. Our next speaker is Jeannie Monk. Jeannie came to Juneau for the summer in 1992 when she was young looking for an adventure. Along with adventure, she found a man, bought a house, had a couple kids, got a full-time grown-up job, and has ended up staying for more than 20 years. The story she's going to tell tonight goes way back to before she ever thought about moving to Alaska. During high school and college, Jeannie always wanted to be the kind of person who would join the Peace Corps. You know the type, adventurous, rugged, brave, tough, but didn't think she would ever have to actually be that person. So it came as a shock when, in 1998, she found herself alone in a small remote village in Sierra Leone. Here is her story. It was 4 a.m. when a strange rustling sound woke me from my fitful sleep. I shone my flashlight around the room and was horrified to see thousands of ants coming in my bedroom window. Now, these were not any kind of ants. They were African driver ants. <laughs> they, they were coming in my bedroom, and I was alone and terrified. Now, when I say I was alone, um, you have to remember, it was 1988. It was my first night in my mud brick house in a remote village in Sierra Leone, West Africa. The village was Bogbuabu. I could barely even say the name. Um, there were, I had no telephone, no computer. I didn't even have an iPod. Um, I couldn't Google driver ants. I couldn't message a friend on Facebook. I was on my own. <laughs> the Peace Corps had dropped me off the previous afternoon. And as I watched the Land Rover disappear down the road, I felt completely abandoned. I spoke only a few words of Mende. I had no idea what I would eat or how I would survive even one night, much less two years. And now there were millions of ants coming into my room. Despite my panic, I, seemed, I remembered hearing that the ants didn't like kerosene. So I began frantically sprinkling kerosene from my lantern around my bed and across the floor. And by some miracle, the ants turned and began to go back out the window. So at this point, I was totally freaked out, but I got back in bed and lay awake for the rest of the night, just listening for the return of the ants. I must have finally dozed off again because I didn't wake up until my new neighbor, Sylvester, called to me through my bedroom window. So I dragged myself out of bed and went out onto the porch and said good morning to Sylvester. And I told him about the ants. 
I that had come during the night. And Sylvester just laughed and he said, Dumb aunts, they waka waka all sad. And he did not take it at all seriously. The villagers were welcoming, but they seemed very concerned about this obviously helpless young white woman who'd been abandoned in their village <laughs> and weren't sure what to do with me. So they told me I had a sister living in a nearby village and maybe I should send for her. <laughs> well, since my own sister was actually 6,000 miles away, I figured this must mean there was another white woman in the area. So not knowing what else to do, I wrote, a note to her, I wrote a note on a piece of paper and handed it to a small boy who set off down the path. And I think maybe the note sounded pretty desperate. So a few hours later, I heard the sound of a motorcycle. And um, it stopped in front of my house, and a crowd grew. And off jumped an amazing woman. She had wild, dark hair under her helmet. She was wearing a skirt and flip-flops. And she gave me a big hug and said, welcome, and asked me how I was doing. And I told her, honestly, I don't know how I'm going to survive. This is so much harder than I had ever expected. Well, she took control of the situation. And she talked to the chief. And then she told me that we were going to go back to her village for a few days. And that when we returned, my neighbor um, woman, um, Mariana, would cook for me. And the men would build me a kitchen and a latrine. I was so relieved that somebody was giving me directions. So she handed me her helmet, and I climbed on the motorcycle behind her, and we set off down the road. And as we picked up speed, she shouted, hold on. And I um, immediately relaxed, and I, I felt my anxiety and uncertainty fade away, that I was no longer alone, and I was going to hold on to this woman for as long as I could. So Suzanne, or Aminata, as she was known in her village, became my best friend. Um, we, we, um, she was the experienced one, and I was willing to follow her anywhere. She, she was an agriculture volunteer, and I was a health volunteer, and together we tried to make a difference in our little corner of Africa. Um, we did what we could to try and improve health and nutrition, but mostly we just lived our lives. And at this time, the Peace Corps administration had no way to keep tabs on us, so we were free. Um, we, um, we had a motorcycle, and we had two mountain bikes, and we could really do whatever we wanted. So it was both terrifying and exhilarating. I could talk about our adventures all night. We planted a community rice swamp together. We drank too much and went to the village disco and danced all night. And we spent long afternoons just sitting in, sitting in the shade, passing time. It seemed like we had all the time in the world. But before long, Suzanne's time in the Peace Corps was over, and she returned home. And I remained, and I adjusted to life um, without a sister just down the road. But luckily, during the time we'd had together, I had learned how to survive on my own. So before long, um, or maybe it was uh, before, it, it wasn't too long, or maybe it was too soon. I, I don't even really remember. My time um, in the Peace Corps was over, and I returned home. But luckily, Suzanne was nearby again, and she helped me to readjust to life in the busy US. And over time, we reinvented our friendship and in a world filled with cars and telephones and full-time jobs. 
Um, and even when I moved to Alaska, our friendship remained really strong. She was always one step ahead of me. Um, she had her um, daughter, Erin, about nine months before I had my son, Max, and I continued to look to her lead um, as the experienced parent, and she was always there for me. So when Suzanne was diagnosed with breast cancer, it came as a shock to all of us. Um, but Suzanne was a fighter, and she um, led us all in her battle against cancer, and she never gave up hope. So when um, I held on to Suzanne for as long as I could. Um, she was my African sister, and she was my dear friend. And I held on to her until she could no longer hold on against her battle with cancer. So when I, and when I miss Suzanne now, I remember, um, I remember that carefree, larger-than-life woman who had dark, flowing hair and who rode into um, my village on her motorcycle and was there to help me through, through my Peace Corps days. So I don't, I don't know what happens after we die, but I hope that Suzanne will be waiting for me and will um, lead the way on the next step. Listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on April 12, 2016, at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Back in the Day. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. the governor to be a participant <laughs> in one of our Mudrooms events. Governor Bill Walker was born in Fairbanks and raised in Delta Junction in Valdez. His parents, Ed and Francis Walker, were Alaskan pioneers. As a family, the Walkers celebrated Alaska statehood in 1959, survived the 1964 earthquake, and worked together in the family construction and hotel businesses. Prior to taking office, Governor Walker and his wife Donna owned a law firm that focused on municipal and oil gas law. Sorry, on municipal and oil and gas law. Married since 1977, the Walkers have four children and four grandchildren. Governor Walker is an avid downhill skier, enjoys fishing, boating, snow machining, campfires with the family at the lake, and taking the grandkids ice skating. Please welcome Governor Bill Walker.
Well, what an honor it is to tell my story. Um, to set the story up, I have to talk a little bit about growing up in Valdez, the importance of basketball to a, um, uh, to a kid who wanted to get out of town. You did not get out of town unless you made the team. So you had to be on the team to, make, to get out of town. So it also involves um, Marty Rutherford. I don't know if anybody here knows Marty Rutherford, but she's the acting commissioner of the Department of Natural Resources. So life goes on in Valdez. There's no radio. There's no TV. There's no bowling alley. There's no theater. There's no, you've got basketball. That's all you got. So <clears throat> we won in, um, when I was a, a senior, we won a regional tournament which meant that if we won the regional tournament, the playoff tournament was in Unilocleet. We had to travel to Unilocleet to, to, uh, to play in the, in the uh, in championship uh, tournament. So we won the regionals from Kenai. We came back to Valdez, excited about that. We went to the school board and said, we need some money to um, go to the, on this, this trip. They said, no, we don't have any money. Go to the city council. So we went to the city council meeting. You know, I guess now they like celebrate when you win a tournament. And, and then in the 60s, they didn't. We went in and we said, we need $700 to be able to fly to Unicleet to, to play in the tournament. And I'll never forget this. They said, well, you should have th thought of that before you won the regional tournament. <laughs> <clears throat> Who does that anymore? But anyway, I remember that so well. So Marty and I, I mean, Marty was the head cheerleader. I was on the basketball team. So we, we went out and raised money. We got enough money to go to, uh, to Unicleet to, to play in the tournament. Now, it was just us and Unicleet. We lost the tournament. Now, I don't actually know why I told that whole part of the story because it, you don't tell a story, you usually lost. But, but anyway, that was just how important basketball was to us. So off we, we graduated from high school. Off we go to college. We come back after our first semester. And I tell you, there's no one smarter than a, a college student with one, half, with one semester halfway through. It just doesn't get any better than that. So Mario and I came back to Valdez. And we got there before anybody else of any of our, our, our group that uh, uh, our classmates. And there was a regional tournament in Delta Junction in, in like, it must have been like December 20th or so. So I said, hey, Marty, let's go to that tournament. It's kind of like relive the old, the old times, you know, as far as going up to, to uh, Delta. And Delta, for those who know, is 256 miles north of Valdez. It was about 40 below in Delta. Um, so we tried to, had to figure out how to borrow somebody's car. You know, in those days, I mean, there wasn't a matter of a two-car family. It was like, it was a big deal if it was a one-car family, much less a two-car. So getting a car was a little challenging. I asked my folks if I could borrow the only car they had, and they said, no, that won't be happening. She asked the same thing of her dad, and her dad said, John Kelsey, I don't know who John Kelsey is, but great guy. He said, no, but I'll drive you up there. I said, oh, no, we're not going to have, no, Marty, we're not going to have your dad drive us to Delta. I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> so, so we finally found a friend of ours whose who's, uh, folks in, would let them him use the car. So his car is the, the family station wagon, pretty old. His name was Willie Schmidt. And he said, well, I'll, let's, we can all drive up there. So we did, uh, Willie Schmidt, Marty Rutherford, and myself. And as we're going along in this car, it was a station wagon, it was an early vintage station wagon, um, things started not working so well as we got into the colder weather. You get past Glen Allen, you know, Paxson, uh, you get up, it's, it's a little bit colder. So we got to, to Delta, and we seemed to be losing parts of the transmission on the way. <laughs> so we got to Delta, we went to the game, it was just great, we, you know, it's like the old times, and it's all, knew a lot of the people were there, and we came out and started up the car, and it only had one gear left, and it was reverse. <clears throat> so we backed over to where we were staying, some friend's house, and, 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 uh, <clears throat> and Marty said, uh, well, I need to call my dad and he'll come get us. I said, no, Marty, don't call your dad. I, I, don't, I don't want to listen to I told you so for 256 miles from your dad. So, so I said, here's the plan. We're driving. We're going to go to Valdez tomorrow. We're going to drive. 
So the next morning, or about mid-morning, when it finally became daylight in Delta, it was 45 below, we backed out of Delta, <clears throat> heading down the Bridgeton Highway. <clears throat> and you could stick your head out the window for about 10 minutes and, and uh, backing up. And then, so we would rotate. Each of us would, would drive for 10 minutes. <clears throat> We'd rotate around. And I thought, well, I think we're going to do this. I mean, we're, by golly, we're, we got some very strange looks from a lot of drivers on, on the highways. Like, what are these guys doing? Like, we can do this, Marty. We can do it. You know, I always like to challenge. And, and, and I, I, I sure have one now. But I always like to, <clears throat> I've always liked to challenge. And um, so we make it about halfway to Paxson. And, and all of a sudden, we lost out all important gear reverse. <laughs> So we didn't have to pull over the side of the road because that's where we were driving anyway. We just stopped and, <clears throat> man, now what are we going to do? And, uh, and we'd never hitchhiked before. I mean, you grow up in, you grow up in Valdez, you just, I mean, you just don't ever hitchhike. And um, so we got out, and it was, it, was, it was the middle of the day, bright daylight. And so we figured the next car that came by would, would stop. And so along came a car and just went right past us. I went, huh. I said, well, one of us better get out. I said, Marty, you get out. <clears throat> you get out. She was the only girl. She'll, she'll, they'll stop for a girl. There's no problem. Next car came by, went right past us again. I'm like, what the heck is this? And um, so then we started hitchhiking and, and, and trying to get a ride to Paxson. And uh, uh, this, I'll never forget this. This car went by, and I finally, now I'm getting out in the, in the trap. In the, I figure maybe if there's more people, maybe they'll stop. So I get out there, and the car went by, and Marty was so livid. She was so angry. I'll never forget what she said. She just turned and screamed. I won't say exactly what she said. <laughs> I'll paraphrase what you said. <clears throat> she just was standing in the middle of that road and just screamed at it. And she said, hey, you better stop. We might be somebody someday. <laughs> and I, I looked at her and I said, why would you say that? Remember, we had already gone through one semester of college. So we were right up there. I said, why would you say that? She says, I don't know. It just seemed like something the right thing to say. So anyway, we've been friends ever since, and now she's the acting commissioner of DNR, and, and we have a great time together. But, and she hates it. She hates it when I tell that story. So <clears throat> I tell it as often as I can. Thank you. So two things, three things. First, this is our first uh, person to hold political office that has not gone over seven minutes, so. And number two. On Friday, it is the governor's birthday. So before our 15-minute intermission, I would like you all to join as we um, sing a happy birthday. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Mr. Governor, happy birthday to you. Since I'm not used up all my time, um, I just wanted to say what, how, what an honor it is to be here tonight. And since I've been governor, this is the first time I've ever been on stage in blue jeans. I love Juno. 
next speaker is Amanda Babin. Amanda was born and raised in sunny Southern California. She's an identical twin and is one of five siblings. She's lived in Juneau for three and a half years and doesn't see herself leaving anytime soon. A random fact about Amanda is that she is more likely to forget her cell phone at home than her water bottle. Water bottle. She takes it everywhere and calm, it calms her when she's nervous. Maybe I need a water bottle? <laughs> Speaking in front of all of you makes her very nervous, so please welcome to the stage Amanda and her water bottle. Hello. Uh, this story uh, is from my childhood. Uh, it took place when I was age nine. My identical twin was also age nine. My younger brother was seven. Uh, my older brother was 11. My eldest sister was off at college. And then my parents were however old parents are, because I don't know. And uh, so growing up, we had a family dog. And at age nine, our family dog passed away. We learned about dog years and how our dog was really old. And it was OK. And shortly after our family dog passed, uh, cats started showing up. I think they were already in the neighborhood before, but we didn't notice them because we had a dog in our backyard, so they didn't go there. Um, and we started asking mom and dad, oh, whose cats are those? And they said, those are no one's cats. Those are stray cats. And we're like, well, who feeds them? And she's like, we don't know. We're like, well, we should feed them. And we convinced mom and dad to leave a bowl of food and a, a bowl of water outside for the stray cats. We quickly became known as the cat house in the neighborhood because I like to say they picked us. Um, we also conveniently had a small field behind ourselves that is still vacant to this day, AKA the litter box. The one rule was uh, that we did have some stray cats that were wild and did not let us near them, and then some of them became friendly, and they were allowed in the house. But the rule was, uh, at the end of the night, they go out of the house, and that's their time. So as we you know, adopted these stray cats, uh, we learned about how it's important to spade and neuter cats and so that they don't become overpopulated. And I remember when our first cat had kittens. And she was pretty friendly, so we got to play with the kittens, and we thought it was the best. And we learned that it's a better time to give away stray cats is when they're kittens. People like kittens better than wild cats. Um, so we had to give away three of the kittens, and we got to keep one. Um, but the next time, another mother gave birth to more kittens. And this one was not so friendly. And so our goal was we still needed to spay the mom and give the cat kittens good home. So we had to catch them. And we went with a brilliant method any cartoon would approve. We went and got a piece of wood, a cardboard box, a stick, and a string. And we were determined to catch these cats so we could take them and get spayed and neutered. And uh, we put four kids in a bush. And we thought we were going to be very successful. Um, turns out four kids in a bush is not quiet. Um, so slowly we, we grew bored, uh, except for my youngest brother. He was a, he's very determined, still to this day a very persistent person. So he was going to catch a cat that night. So it was just him in the bush, which was much better probably. But we kind of moved on. And lo and behold, 30 minutes later, we heard hooting and hollering, and he had caught the mama cat. 
He was so excited. Uh, so my dad goes and he picks up the piece of wood in the box and brings it to our spare bathroom where the cat was going to stay for the night. Put some food, put some water, good to go. As he's kind of tipping the box and running for the door so that the cat doesn't get out, we found out uh, he did not catch the mama cat. He also did not catch the baby kittens. <laughs> Turns out he had caught other animals that eat our food. It was a very large, pissed off possum. <laughs> Equally pissed off was my mother. <laughs> Turns out possums can break a lot of things. Uh, and they hiss, and it was not happy to be in our bathroom. And we were not exactly happy either, but uh, we had to figure out how to get the possum out of the bathroom. Our first plan of attack was to open the window and take off the screen and put a little piece of hamburger patty from dinner at the window. Uh, more things broke. Uh, I remember glass was not my mom's favorite. When I heard that sound, I knew we were a little bit in trouble. Uh, so we went to plan B. And plan B was to build a, uh, the, the, the bathroom was located on about a 10-foot hall right by the front door. So the bathroom was to the left. The end of the hall was my sister's room, a small closet, and about a six-feet entryway, so the span of my arms, uh, and that entered the living room. So our game plan was to blockade this six feet. So shut the door. His only exit was outside. So as the four kids, we basically got to build a fort. And we used tables and chairs and couch cushions. I think we had a piece of luggage, so we were stoked. We were fort building. We got this. Meanwhile, my dad was suiting up because he was the one in charge of motivating the possum towards the door. <laughs> uh, so he, uh, we actually had a roller hockey stick from when my older sister played roller hockey, but that doesn't have much padding. If we had hockey gear, we probably would have been a little better, but he just put on as much clothes as he could, and then that included puffy snow clothes. I don't know, about 20 years ago in Juneau, maybe you had better clothes, but everything in Southern California was like, Poof, you were puffy. So he put on as much as he could, gloves, uh, he had a hockey stick, a trash can lid, and that was, we were good to go. So. Um, we did try opening the door in hopes that maybe the possum would just find its way out, but uh, it seemed pretty content in our warm bathroom with food and water. So I remember my dad just going in the bathroom and he's eking and possum's hissing and it's only three feet to the door from the bathroom. And he's like hockey gear and we're watching from behind the luggage and we get the possum out of the bathroom. And we're cheering, we're like, yay! And that was the time we had the possum in the bathroom. We learned a lot from this story. We still learned we had to get the kittens and give them good homes. We had to spay and neuter. We had to spay mom. But we also learned that sometimes it pays to have the right equipment. So from then on, we still, uh, in our years, spayed and neuter many wild cats. My dad still has, uh, maybe he has Angel's cat. I don't know, it's California. Uh, <laughs> But we still have all of them, but we rent the professional traps now from the vet, and we retired the box and stick method. <laughs> Our next speaker tonight is Caro Clark. Caro grew up in New England and first moved to Juneau three years ago from the Caribbean, where she was bartending and finishing her master's thesis. Since then, she has spent the last several years balancing time between Southeast Alaska and traveling around North America and Europe to pursue artist residencies, 
fellowships, and a boat-building apprenticeship. She enjoys long cries on the beach and was born a blonde. Um, also a PSA, like any past or future boyfriends might want to leave the room. <laughs> so my story begins back in 2008. Um, I just graduated from college armed with an English degree during the recession, and I decided to move to New York City. I moved in with my boyfriend at the time and our cat, and we uh, moved all the way out in the far reaches of Brooklyn in a little area called Bay Ridge, which is the last stop on the R train and about an hour outside of Manhattan. And, and we, things were not going well. I couldn't find work and I wasn't getting along with my boyfriend, not because of him, but like because of me. And so around Christmas time, he was like, I'm gonna go home for like three weeks <laughs> and maybe we can like think about things and um, revisit what's happening between us. And I was like, okay. So at that point, I'm pretty isolated in this neighborhood. It was a neighborhood of uh, Hasidic Jews and Russian immigrants and middle-class families. And I was this 23-year-old girl. Um, and I was so lonely. And I also lived above this store called Nothing Fits, which, <laughs> aside from implying that like everything in the store is going to make you look terrible, because um, that's how uncool my neighborhood was, I also just didn't fit in. And it was this constant, ongoing reminder that I did not belong in New York City. <laughs> so it was only a couple days after my boyfriend skipped town that I went into the kitchen to get some food and I opened up the pantry door and out runs a mouse. And I had never had mice in my life. I was so naive and green and I was freaked out. So I just immediately like run downstairs to the building super who was this really attractive Russian guy. And I was like, you know, cue law and order soundtrack because we have an incident. <laughs> there's a mouse in my apartment. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, oh. And he, he said, be glad you have mice. It means you don't have rats. <laughs> so armed with that logic, <laughs> I go back upstairs to my place, and I grab the duct tape, and I tape shut the pantry door because there's no way I'm gonna put out any traps at this point. Like, I know what's gonna happen, I'll get a ton of rats. So, I'm like, I can do this, I can do this. Like, I can live off of refrigerated food, like, I don't need dry foods. They'll be there when my boyfriend gets back. Later that night, I'm, I'm a pretty light sleeper, I wake up to like the sound of chewing. Anybody who's had mice knows this sound. And I'm like, this is impossible because I really did a good job with that duct tape. <laughs> and I walk into the kitchen and sure enough, it, I mean, it is perfectly barricaded. And I hear the sound and I realize I have trapped the mouse in with the food. Like I had taken a prisoner and like thrown them in a grocery store <laughs> and been like, shame on you. But again, I was like, that's fine. I can hold out for a couple weeks uh, until 
<laughs> my boyfriend comes back. And so I then proceed to not sleep for like six days. Um, I'm like unraveling clearly in this story. And then I wake up one night to the sound of squealing. Oh no, this mouse is now slowly dying of oxygen deprivation. <laughs> but I, I, I run into the kitchen as now is my new hobby and there is now a new mouse sitting in front of the pantry, so sad. <laughs> because I have broken up a family. And the mouse like goes on to wander away and, and I uh, have a friend from college coming the next morning to have tea with me and I haven't had any visitors in a while. So I don't, I don't sleep and, and she comes and I'm just, you know, sort of anxious and I, I hang up this uh, blanket on the doorway because like, you know, hide your problems. Like she can't see into the kitchen. She won't know I'm insane. And um, she comes over. I'm like, this, hopefully this mouse doesn't walk into the room and like, sure enough, he's just like, hey, and he like strolls into my kitchen or into my living room and my friend immediately hones in on it and it's like, so, you've got mice? <laughs> and I was like, no, that's Pepe. <laughs> and I proceed to build a story <laughs> in which I have a free range pet mouse which my friend really politely pretends to believe. And then I never saw her again. Um, no, she's still my friend. Anyway, uh, she leaves and I feel a lot of guilt about like what I've done to Pepe and we've bonded since I've named him. So I then go on to get a shoebox and uh, I put some shaved carrots in it. I put some like pillow stuffing in it and um, I find this like beautiful little shell and I fill it with water because I have gone off the deep end at this point. <laughs> and I put it in the box with Pepe and I have given him a home. And that is the scene my boyfriend returns to. <laughs> so, the gracious person that he is, he like looks around and he's like, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. And I felt bad because, you know, he had returned to this situation as the person, you know, he had left, which I don't know if that's what we wanted. I think we wanted growth, but he had returned to me <laughs> who had like become maybe his worst nightmare. And so he proceeded to take the tape off the door and uh, set a trap, which I had not wanted to do. And then the thing happened that we should have predicted from the beginning, the cat got to the mouse when it came out the pantry and it decapitated it. <laughs> and so there was this like little like bloodbath in the kitchen and in the living room, there was this little other mouse newly widowed and it was then that I realized it was just such a wake-up call for me that I had become this really scared, not brave person. And I, I just said, never again. I signed up for AmeriCorps the next day. I moved to Seattle. I ended up in Juneau. I'm very thankful to those mice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
before I introduce the last speaker of the evening, I want to say that with your $7, we raised $2,063 for Meals on Wheels tonight. Give yourselves a hand. <laughs> Danny Peterson was born and raised in the quaint town of Juneau, Alaska. He would later grow up to appoint himself as the town's unofficial mascot, much to the chagrin of its citizens. Danny enjoys the arts, especially writing. That's it. That's his introduction. Please help me welcome Danny. So it's the winter of uh, 1998, and I'm the youngest of six boys. My older brother, Sean, is trying to get my, my parents to get us a PlayStation 1 for Christmas. Christmas just around the corner. And she's kind of on the fence about it. And um, <clears throat> so we don't have a PlayStation yet, so we're bored. Sean goes and takes me outside to go sledding. And so I put on my, my favorite hat, which is a pilot's hat. Has the two flaps on the side, the flap in the front. And we're at the top of the hill, and we're looking down, and there's a snowy hill on the right-hand side and the road on the left-hand side, and just kind of taking it all in before we, go, before we go down. And Sean gives me a crash course on what's going to go down. He's like, all right, Danny, I'm going to sit in the front. You're going to sit in the back. You just hang on to the side of the sled, and if I say lean left, or if I say left, just lean left. If I say right, lean right. If I say bail, just kind of tuck and roll out of, the, out of the sled. And I'm like, okay, whatever you say, Sean. And I get in the back of the sled, and I clutch on, and we're starting to go down the hill. And it's starting to pick up speed, getting some wind on my face. My face is starting to get flushed, and it's starting to get kind of exciting. And I hear my brother Sean say, right. So I lean right, and I'm about nine years old, and I lean right, and um, the hat just covers my eyes completely. It's totally black. And per his instructions, though, I'm still holding, clutching on, and I'm like, oh, well, I can't, I, can't, I can't move the thing. I have to clutch on the slide. It's safety, safety first. <laughs> and uh, he says, lean right, and I'm leaning right, and also... I'm the youngest brother, so I'm so suggestible. I just don't even know where to sit or stand unless someone tells me. So I don't even, I just like continue leaning right. Like, I'm like, okay, if he tells me to center myself, then I will. I'm just going to keep on, you know, continue to lean right. In case, I don't want to screw this whole operation up. And uh, so it's just totally black. And uh, I hear the beginning of bail. It's like, bet, and then it's like, bet. And, uh, and then I see stars, and it's just totally black. And uh, I'm on the ground, and uh, I pull up the hat so that I can look at my brother Sean, and he's just like laughing at me. He's just like, <laughs> and of course that's his reaction. And then I explain what happened. I'm like, oh, and there's a stop sign there. And I'm like, well, I was leaning right, like you said. And hat was totally covering my face, so I just smacked my head right on the uh, on the stop sign there, Sean. And he's just oh, <laughs> just laughing even harder. And then um, I take the hat off of my head, and he goes from laughing to just being completely p 
pale. All the blood just like sucks out of his system as a trickle of blood trickles down my forehead. And uh, he, all of a sudden, he's really scared now. And he's like, lay, lay in the sled, Danny. Just lay in the sled. Don't move. He's like really panicking. He's like, I'll just take you back to, to mom and dad's house. Just lay there. So I just lay there. And he keeps on saying like, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep, Danny. You know, like... <laughs> If you have a concussion, you're going to go into a coma or something. And it, Meanwhile, it's like the most superficial cut. Like, it's like a shaving cut, you know. It's like there's no skull or brain matter or anything. But he's like, don't fall asleep. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, so he takes me back to the house, and everything's fine. My mom covers me in a blanket, gives me uh, hot cocoa and everything. And Sean kind of calms down, too, and he realizes it's just a superficial cut. And he kind of sets me aside, and he's like, you know, the sympathy that you're getting from mom, you know, you could really, like, use this as leverage, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? To get what we all want, you know? I'm like, oh, I got gotcha. you. So my mom comes back. My mom's like, is there anything I can do to make you feel better, Dan? Is there anything? I'm just so scared. You're coming back, and you're all bloody, and I'm I'm just like, just in the most fragile, sickly, like, tiny Tim voice, I'm just like, Mom, what would really make me feel better is a PlayStation. <laughs> and she gets us the PlayStation. <laughs> Thank you, that's all I have. I gotta do my taxes now. Wait, I gotta do an Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on April 12, 2016. The theme for the evening was Back in the Day. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Maniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, and Kristen Stouter. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. <laughs>